turning your Bibles to Psalm 2, uh, I just want to say that Lindsay and I, uh, back in December when we got a chance to come share a Sunday with you, were just so blessed. And uh, I think it was the whole drive home and probably a week later we just kept talking about the genuine love we uh, experienced here for each other and certainly for our Lord. So thank you for having us back, Pastor Mingy. So in Psalm 2, uh, i go the wrong way here. Uh, it's not sliding here. Uh, okay, all right. <clears throat> so in Psalm 2, we're going to go into what is considered a messianic psalm. And um, just as a way of short background here, um, of course, the word Messiah that we uh, translate in English there is the Hebrew word Mashiach, and it means anointed one. Uh, much like in the New Testament, uh, the word Christos in Greek is also uh, meaning anointed one. So we're speaking, when we speak of the Messiah, we're speaking of uh, our Lord Jesus. And uh, there are many messianic psalms, more than are listed there, but I did uh, take the opportunity to share a few of them. And as you look through there, you can tell that each of these psalms speak to or about um, uh, our Messiah. And I, I certainly I reviewed them as I was uh, prepping here, and uh, if you haven't gone through them, I encourage you to, but certainly in Psalm 22, what a, um, a graphic and beautiful uh, description of what our Lord endured for us on the cross um, as the cruci- crucified Messiah. Um, Psalm 2 is the first one, of course, of these, and... Uh, while I've, I read some maybe considered it uh, possibly an orphan psalm, I believe the, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And in Acts 4.25, this psalm is referred to and quoted a bit of it, and it is uh, referred to as a psalm of David. So I'll take that as, as uh, God sharing who wrote it. So as we move into um, Psalm 2, let's go ahead and read the first few verses, and we'll go from there. So why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Um, A couple definitions as we get going, you know, the word rage there in verse 1 means like a violent excitement and extreme vehemence. You can sort of sense that, uh, that passion even against or towards God uh, in a negative way. And then uh, a little later in the verse, it talks about why do they plot a vain thing or a futile or worthless thing. Uh, and, you know, we see that in our, in our lives uh, probably now more than ever in our country, but I see it at home. Lindsay and I are in a, a season of our life where we have young children, and we've been there for a while now, but um, very quickly uh, we can see that we don't have to teach them to rage. <laughs> and um, there'll be time to time throughout our day, you know, where you can sense that's going on, and, and you know, I'll approach our, our living room where they turn into their battlefield each day, and, and uh, there's hundreds of toys many times on the floor, uh, but we find that two of them or more have decided one or two of those are the most valuable toys in the entire world, <laughs> and so they rage, and, and, and I think about why do the nations rage, I like to break it down to why do we rage, all right, and as you see up there, I have James 4 for you, and I'm going to read that, and it's going to give us the answer. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, enmity, I can speak, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so really, why do we rage? It starts with us. You know, we, we rage because of what's going on inside of us, all right? And notice the end of that becomes you're an enemy of God, all right? So that's, that's ultimately what we see. And you guys have been studying Genesis now for a little while. And just as a quick review, you've, you've journeyed through some areas where we've seen mankind and the nations raging. You know, back in Genesis 6, you saw it got so bad that God decided he had to destroy the, the, the earth, basically, with a flood. And, and certainly Noah and his family found grace in his sight, and that's, that's something to take to heart. Um, but the nations were raging, right? And a few chapters later in the Tower of Babel, um, and a story that I think has a lot of application to our current state of affairs in the world, uh, mankind was, was uh, raging in a sense that they decided they were going to build this tower, and it wasn't about construction as much as they were trying to ascend. They were trying to be like God, trying to be on the level or even greater than him. And God had to come down and, you know, mess up their language and provide, you know, a good chunk of my family and jobs for most of their life in education trying to teach things, right? So, um, and then finally, last time we were here, uh, we touched on it a little bit in Genesis 19, where we see Sodom and Gomorrah and that story, and where it got so bad that those towns didn't even have 10 righteous. In fact, while God saved Lot and his daughters, his wife didn't even make it out, right? Because uh, it had gotten so wicked. So, so nations have been raging for a long time. And so what we're experiencing even today, it's not new. All right? But as we see what has caused it in us individually, you know, and nations are just a, a bunch of individuals together, right? Um, finally, our next in uh, verse number two, I'd like to uh, point out that the object of the rage is God and his anointed one. All right? And that, isn't that true in our own lives? <laughs> You know, so as, as, we, as we think about that, uh, what really came to mind with me is that the sad irony is that is not what the Lord is to us. It's exactly the opposite, all right? So we've gotten to a point with all these quarrels and wars inside of us, right, that we uh, believe that God is the enemy, uh, so much so that we feel like we're restrained from him. You know, we've got bonds, we've got, we've got cords tying us up. Um, so that made me think uh, about Matthew 11, and it's just a beautiful uh, area of Scripture, certainly worth memorizing. Uh, but it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavenly burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And isn't that the opposite of what these raging nations are communicating? Uh, and isn't it uh, the, the case in our life? In fact, I, I put this Spurgeon quote up. I'll lead with that and then share what I was going to share. But it says, To a graceless neck, the yoke of Christ is intolerable. But to the saved sinner, it is easy and light. And we may judge ourselves by this. Do we love that yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? 
right? And I find at least on a personal note in my own life, even as a Christian, I've got to be careful about this. And certainly the last year has given me a lot of reason to uh, maybe respond uh, in frustration with what's going on or uh, questioning you know, or even finger-pointing to those who are not uh, living as they should. And, and certainly maybe some of you might agree with the path in some cases that our, our country seems to be on. Um, but ultimately, when you sense that rage sort of building in you, all right, isn't it an, a, sort of uh, an example of the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe we're rising in our flesh and starting to rage, right? And we need to remember that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and so we need to confess and get back to that point where we can rest in who he is and, and, and sort of walk in that restfulness, even in the midst of crazy things, okay? Um, so back to the, to the psalm. Let's go into verse 4. Um, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And I want you to notice right away God's reaction. Uh, first, he's sitting. Right? He's not concerned. He hasn't called in Michael and Gabriel and had some kind of a strategy session. Uh, he's not bothered at all, so much so that he's laughing. All right? And it's a laugh of mockery. It's a laugh of derision. Um, and <laughs> I'm going to give you a second to sort of think about what that laugh sounds like to you. Because for me, I've still got some scars and leftover garbage from, from my youth. And I, I, this is lighthearted. But I, I was from the generation of the original Star Wars movies. Okay, And I can't believe I'm sharing this from up here. But every time I read that in preparation, all I could hear was Jabba the Hutt laughing in The Return of the Jedi when he was talking to Han Solo and Princess Leia, and that is a curse that I would not wish on all of you, but I need you to share that burden with me, right? Make that yoke a little easier. So he's literally looking down at them like, what are you thinking? Remember, it's a futile and worthless effort, right? So I see that laugh, but also notice that he declares victory, all right? This is not a God that is, is, is shaken by this. Uh, he is certainly in control. And the Hebrew word there in um, verse number 5, when it says to speak to them in his wrath, that word speak also sort of includes the idea of to subdue or destroy. This is a serious matter, right? Um, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And notice he doesn't have to get up and even go fight them. He speaks to them in his wrath. He's he's not, again, affected by the raging uh, in that sense. And then that declared victory, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And I put a little bit of Psalm 48 uh, over there on the side. It's speaking of Zion, which is Jerusalem. Um, It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, <clears throat> on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. All right? So God declares to us victory. All right? He has already established his king. All right? So as we move into verse number 7, this is going to be the anointed one uh, telling us what the Father has declared. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And the anointed one again, our Lord Jesus, is speaking. Uh, and, and I wanted to just focus a second on that, that uh, in Hebrews 1, verses 5 and 6, they also reference this psalm. And it says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Again, showing that the son is equal there. Notice he wasn't created. In fact, in Colossians 1, um, 16, I believe, around that phrase, he says that you know Christ created all things, and all things were made for him uh, and by him. So he is on equal ground with the Father. All right. So the anointed one is his Son. All right. And then also notice in verse um, eight, it says, "Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession." You know. Our, our world, it's his rightful inheritance. You know, God has declared that that is his son, that his, his son's inheritance, his possession even. And in Revelations 11, uh, verse 15, it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right? So he is... Uh, going to receive this inheritance. It is done, all right? And I, I focused in a little bit on that phrase, ask of me. And, and again, the pictures that God paints for us in Scripture are tremendous. You know, our marriages are supposed to be a picture where we're the bride of Christ, right? But in this psalm, you can't get away from the picture of the Father and the Son. And again, back to sort of my daily life is... is one of the things that uh, just grabs my heart every single time is my son, who's my youngest, is age four, and he finds his way down to me in the office or uh, comes up to me at some point, if not multiple points through the day, and he's just like, hey, can we spend some guy time together? All right, Will you read with me? Uh, will you, you know, play with me? And my heart melts every time, and, and every time I can pause, I will, um, or I'll set up a time that we can. You know, and the, and the father you know, has such joy in giving his son this inheritance. You know, think about that picture and also take it and personalize it. You know, he, he takes joy in, in being with us and takes joy in, in being able to share with us the inheritance of his love, all right, and all that he has given us as his kids. Um, and then finally we get to verse 9 and the demise of the son's enemies, uh, again, this decree is, is, is very clear there. And so I wanted to take a little extra time, and we're going to go to Revelation 19, and you can turn there with me if you'd like. And I'm going to read this whole passage, and I'm going to give you a little warning ahead of time. It gets a little graphic. Um, but again, back to what was declared as a sure victory, I think it's important for us to take uh, the serious things that we find in the Word, uh, as well as the things like we just talked about, with His love for us like children, right? So I'm going to read all ten verses, and we're going to see, again, ultimately, the demise of the Son's enemies. And now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, 
And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And again, graphic language, all right? But it needs to be known that this is the end of the enemies of God. Remember what we started the psalm with. Why are they raging? Why, why are they going after a futile or worthless thing? So he's giving us the raw truth. All right? He's giving us the assurance. That, that's, of course, speaking of Armageddon there in Revelation 19. And, and ultimately, where all of this is going to happen that we've talked about in the decree. You know? But I love the Lord because even in this psalm, as we look at the realities of what our sin is costing us, you see his grace over and over. And we're going to sort of close as we go into that. So let's, let's look at these uh, last three verses. And uh, again, a couple of definitions as we get started. I'll read it. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And again, these definitions, wise means to be circumspect, intelligent, consider, understand. All right? And instructed, be chastened, chastised, corrected, and reproved. All right? Notice the, the, uh, who he's addressing here. He's addressing the kings. He's addressing the nations. He's addressing those who are raging against him. While he declared what is ultimately going to happen, right? he still loves them. He's, he's pleading with them to be instructed, to be wise, uh, to, to, to take the opportunity to turn to him. All right? And um, it says there, serve the Lord with fear. Uh, and rejoice with trembling, and it brought to mind Proverbs. You know, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know, um, fear isn't 
being afraid that he's out to harm us, all right? But it's that healthy reverence or respect. And it says there, kiss the son in verse 12, which is a demonstration of submission, surrender, reverence. But just back to my picture about us as his kids or my son walking in and interrupting something I'm doing. Is my heart to hurt him? Is my heart to harm him? Charlie, get out of here. Leave me, leave daddy alone, you know? No, my heart is to spend time with him, to love him, to, to, and in case when they're raging against the little idols, as I call them, in our living room. <laughs> I, by the way, I threaten occasionally to burn those, and it always seems to bring the, you know, I said we can have a little burning party, right? <laughs> um, but even when I'm having to correct or chasten, right, my heart is not to harm him. You know, my heart is to draw him back to me, right, to the right path. All right, so... Um, that sort of leaves us at a point here in the psalm, much like we were last time we were here. There's you know, a choice that you have to make. Uh, do you want to be broken or, or blessed? You know, in Psalm 1, we talked about the way of the ungodly and, and the way of the righteous. We talked about two gates or two roads. We talked about two foundations, right? So he gives us a choice. He gives the nations a choice. And as he, as he gets to the end of this psalm, um, he certainly, you know, is pleading with, with those who are against him, those who see him as an enemy, uh, and, and calling them back to him, calling them to repent. You know, and God is so faithful with that. And, and I, I was thinking about that as, as, as I looked at the whole picture of this thing, and I said, well, why is he waiting? You know, it seems like we certainly don't deserve him to wait. You know, it, it's... it's, it's the nations are raging. The wickedness, I don't know how it was worse right before the flood or how it was worse as he considered the tower at Babel. Certainly how it was worse in Sodom and Gomorrah, but I don't know, was it Billy Graham or someone said he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology if he doesn't judge America. Uh, and, and, and that's sort of, as I look at that, though, I, I say he's waiting for some reason, and it brought me to Second Peter 3. And... Uh, that whole entire passage, by the way, is certainly worth studying and contemplating. But here in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, his will is not to judge us with that wrath that we see. His will is to, <laughs> to free us. And I'm so thankful he waited long enough for me. And, and, and I know that this probably is something everyone in this room can relate with. We all have loved ones. We all have people that mean so much to us. Uh, and, and they haven't made that choice yet. Uh, we were as a family last night praying for, um, we're trying to pray as a family consistently, which I would certainly uh, exhort you guys to do. Um, but we, we're picking sort of a group we're going to focus on each night. Last night we were praying about so many that either we know don't know the Lord or we're not quite sure because our life doesn't necessarily display it. And we weren't praying as being above them. We're praying as captives who have been set free, just pleading that the Lord would do that work in their lives. So that's why he's waiting, guys. And the time is set, and he knows it, but his heart just like with the, the children of Israel through their journey, just like with us in our personal journey, his heart is that we would come to him. He's long-suffering in his love, right? So that is really where I see Psalm 2. You know, a lot of people focus in on maybe 
the judgment and the decree in the middle, and it deserves our attention. All right? But ultimately, I see the love of a father. I see the desire of God the Father uh, and his anointed one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that none should perish. And I think that's the message in the heart of what Psalm 2 says to me today, at least. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the time in your word today. And uh, thank you so much for waiting for us. I'm so thankful to be in a group of believers here today that I've already seen your love at work in their life. Uh, Just in one time meeting them about a month or so ago, and you've just blessed this fellowship with your presence. And yet we all have people uh, that we love and adore uh, in our lives And uh, we we ask again together as a body today that you would make yourself known to them, that they would see you as the one who provides the yoke that is easy, that you are not their enemy, and that they would cease their raging and turn to you. Lord, thank you so much again for your truth there and, and for you and your sacrifice. And thank you for the assured victory in these troubled times. Thank you for loving us that much. It just blows us away. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.